All right, beloved. Let me open our time in a word of prayer, all right? Heavenly Father, once again, Lord, what a privilege and a blessing it is to hear from you, Lord, and your holy scripture, to hear the revelation from our almighty God, you who are enthroned on high in the heavens, who rules and reigns over all. We thank you, Lord, for this privilege that we have uh, once again as free Christians in this country to open up our Bibles and to sing praises and to worship together and to gather in this way. Oh, Lord, we count it a blessing and a privilege to be able to do that for this time, and I pray that we would cherish the time that we have in your word. I pray, Lord, that today you may give us soft and tender hearts to hear your message from Colossians chapter 1, that you may be glorified, Lord, as there is Christ-likeness um, formed in us, Lord, as we respond in obedience to your holy word. We anticipate great things by your spirit, and we pray that, Lord, you may be glorified at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, beloved, turn your, uh, in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We are back in one uh, for one final message in this great passage of Colossians 1, 24 to 29. And we have been looking at this crucial theme of Christ-centered ministry, Christ-centered ministry. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29, which I read earlier. And we have been answering the important question, how to do successful ministry. What does successful ministry look like? Or maybe restated differently, what does effective, faithful ministry in the church look like? Uh, last week we saw that many churches and leadership groups uh, come up with all kinds of methods and strategies and tactics uh, to do ministry uh, in the church, and they might define successful, effective ministry in various uh, ways and various capacities. Uh, and for the most part, uh, many believers are just well-intentioned people if, who are just succumbing to the latest innovative techniques and tactics uh, to do ministry and maybe do church growth. Um, but even as we were looking at last week, all of this creates so much confusion and a lack of clarity uh, in Christian ministry. And not only that, uh, confusion and a lack of clarity exists because of so many different tactics and techniques that are present uh, in our broader evangelical circles. But many of us uh, can become uh, quite frustrated and discouraged uh, in Christian ministry uh, because we fail to, we, we lose sight of the big picture and maybe we see all of these things happening around us and we think that maybe we need to be conforming to those other uh, techniques or be implementing tactics that are potentially not even biblical. This is why, for me, it's been an exciting study to look at this crucial theme of Christ-centered ministry uh, in this particular text, Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29. Because we need to look, first and foremost, at God and His Word, beloved, for the answers, rather than other places. The fact is that God does not want us to be confused or to be disoriented with regards to how to serve and how to do ministry in the church. And so the last few Sundays in our time in Colossians, we've been, we've been looking at some foundations of Christ-centered ministry, both in our individual lives as families, as well as in our corporate uh, church life. We saw foundation number one a few weeks ago in verses 24 to 25. And we call that the right mindset. Foundation number one, the right mindset. What is the thinking that we ought to arm ourselves with as we minister, as individuals and as a corporate body? And then we saw in foundation number two, the right message in verses 26 through 27. Namely, that the gospel should always be the centerpiece in everything that we do. And we've been looking, beginning with last Sunday, at foundation number three, the right method, in verses 28 through 29, the right method. And as we began looking at verses 28 through 29, I told you that this really is basic Christian ministry 101 in these verses. That when ministry appears confusing, or it's blurred, or complicated, this passage beautifully and wonderfully clarifies and recalibrates our thinking with regard to what faithful ministry looks like in the church. 
And here in verses 28 through 29, Paul highlights four priorities of faithful Christ-centered ministry in the church. Four priorities of faithful Christ-centered ministry in the church. And we saw the first two of four last Sunday. We saw first and foremost that faithful ministry is first and foremost Christ-focused. It is Christ-focused. Christ is the center and the circumference of everything that we do in the life of the church. Christ is not just the entrance into salvation, though He certainly is that. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. But Christ is also to be the center of our ongoing proclamation in life and ministry. His person and His work alone qualifies Him to be the supreme object of our joyful devotion and our loving service. And Paul's point has been, in the previous context, to show the supremacy of Christ in, 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 these, in verses 15 through 20 in particular, so that we may see Him for the unrivaled Lord and Redeemer that He is, and that He would be the sufficient one in our personal sanctification as well as in our corporate body life. Christ is the unrivaled Lord of the universe, and He is to be this, uh, the, our center focal point in all that we do. Secondly, we saw that faithful ministry is discipleship-oriented. It is discipleship-oriented. When you're looking for a faithful church, what you should see in a healthy church is a strong culture of discipleship. A strong culture of discipleship. We cultivate loving relationships with other believers in the church. And in the context of these relationships, we apply all wisdom as we speak the word of God to one another in love and gentleness. And we saw last week that in order for you to be involved in this discipleship-oriented culture, you must know the word of God well. That means that you should be pursuing passionately to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And secondly, you must know people. You must, we must have a highly relational environment, beloved, where discipleship is facilitated, where people getting to know the Word of God are actively getting to know Christ by means of His Word and are actively pursuing getting to know one another so that they're invested into one another and in that apply all wisdom in their speaking and admonishing the truth to one another. The question now is, to what end To what end do we minister this way to one another? To what end? What is the goal? And this is answered by our third priority. So faithful Christ-centered ministry is Christ-focused. Christ is the center and the circumference in all that we do. It is discipleship-oriented. And thirdly, faithful ministry is goal-driven. Faithful ministry is goal-driven. And I want you to see this in verse 28. Paul says, We proclaim Him who is Christ. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. The great Westminster Catechism rightly states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is a perfect statement and absolutely correct with regards to the chief end of man. That we exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So then the question is, how do we glorify God in the here and now? How does our ultimate purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever get fleshed out and expressed in the life of the church as it relates to our interaction with one another in the context of the local church? What does that look like? Well, we have the answer here. We strive for godly discipleship relationships in the church, and in the context of those godly relationships, we speak the truth in love to one another, and we do so with a very specific goal in mind. That is that we become like Jesus, and others that we are ministering to become like Jesus as well. This goal is given to us in verse 28 so that we may present every man complete in Christ. I love that verb translated present. It also appears in chapter 1, verse 22, where it says there that God has reconciled us in order to present 
you before Him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is huge. God's purpose in saving you and I and reconciling you to Himself, sinners such as you and I, is that we would be without fault, blameless and holy. In salvation... God has set you apart from sin unto Himself and His purposes. In other words, you are positionally holy. You are set apart from sin unto His own purposes for His glory. But we are also called to be holy in our practice to match that position that we have before the Lord. We are called to no longer walk like the world, but to strive to be like Christ. So this goal of holiness, of Christ-likeness, is at the core of why God saved us, beloved. God did not just save us from the punishment that we deserve for our sins, though He certainly did that. God delivered us from the domain of darkness, that we would no longer be slaves to our sin, that we would no longer have as the goal of our lives to pursue sin and our own selfish pleasures. No. We've been declared righteous in Christ so that we would be like Christ in our thinking, in our affections, in our words, and in our actions, in our priorities, in our pursuit of Christ to the glory of God. As Christians, Christ-likeness is the greatest good that we want to personally strive for. And can I submit to you, it is the greatest good that we want to see realized in our brothers and sisters in Christ, that they would be like Jesus. In fact, if you love another believer, then holiness should be what you desire most for that particular believer. I love what one pastor theologian has rightly stated. He says that true love is always most concerned with the purity of its object. Think about that. True love is always most concerned with the purity of its object. What does that mean? That if you truly love someone, then what you want more than anything else is that person's purity and holiness more than anything else. If you truly love your brethren, then the ultimate good that you want for them is that they would become like Jesus. And so sometimes that means saying the hard things in order to direct them back to the Lord and what is best for them and what is most beneficial for them as God sees it in His Word, not as they perceive it. Sometimes it means reminding people that their, that their happiness, as they define happiness, is not the highest goal for their life, but Christ's likeness and conformity to Christ should be the greatest goal of their life to the glory of God. And this may involve them having to submit to God's Word rather than their own pleasures or the things that they want to pursue. What is the greatest goal for a Christian wife, a Christian husband, a Christian mama, a Christian father, daddy, for a single person, for a young teenager, for a little child? What is to be the greatest goal? It is to be that they would be like Christ to the glory of God. That is to be the greatest goal. Over the years, many times in counseling, uh, brothers or sisters in Christ or even as couples, it's been amazing. There comes a point in those counseling sessions when I'll ask them. I'll ask the, the, the husband or I'll ask the wife. I'll ask a question like this. What do you think God wants for you most as a believer in that particular marriage? And 70 to 80% of the time, the answer has been something along the lines of my happiness. That God wants them to be happy. And of course, after talking more and looking at Scripture together, they quickly realize that maybe the way that they define happiness is wrong. And that the ultimate goal in that marriage isn't even their own happiness, but it's actually conformity to Christ. And as you learn what that means, and you learn to sell, to serve one another, and to sacrifice for your spouse... It is amazing how fulfilled they feel having invested into their spouse that way so that they now are joyful and happy and self-sacrificing for their spouse. But if you start with the goal being your own personal happiness, then you're going to live a pretty discontented life as a wife 
or as a mother when your kids don't turn out to be the way that you want them or as a husband when your wife doesn't deliver happiness for you as you define it. The goal is Christ-likeness. That's what the goal is. What is the Christian's greatest goal? Is it prosperity? Is it possessions? Is it popularity? Is it prestige? Is it power? No. It is Christ-likeness to the glory of God. It's that you and I, beloved, would be like Jesus and glorify God in that pursuit, that passionate pursuit of being like Christ. See, Paul knew that the Colossian believers, as we ourselves, are broken people, incomplete and in need of daily repair. This is why he uses this beautiful word in verse 28, complete, which can be translated perfect or mature. And it implies that there is a goal that is not achieved, namely completeness in Christ. One day, when each of us stands before God, we will be made perfect in His image. But until that time, we are in a continual state of growing and maturing. And that is a lifetime process. Now notice that this change only happens for those, according to the end of verse 28, who are in Christ. Who are in Christ for Christians. He says, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. In other words, those who are in union with Christ, those whose spiritual life and vitality proceeds from the Redeemer. This is why an unbeliever, someone outside of Christ, cannot become like Christ. You must first of all turn from your sins and surrender your life to the only basis of salvation, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. An unbeliever cannot reform himself or herself. You cannot make yourself a better person and glorify God in that. You can't do that. You can't become like Christ on your own. Because in order to become like Christ, you must be in personal relationship with Christ, in fellowship with Christ, having turned from your sins and put your faith in Christ, that you may be forgiven of your sins and rescued from the punishment that you deserve. If you are not a Christian this morning, what you need to do first and foremost is to plead to God that He would forgive you and save you from your sins. And this is only possible by trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. That is the beginning point. Now, for those of us who are believers, as we understand and live consciously aware of this target goal of Christ-likeness in our lives and in the lives of others, there are some implications for the way that we do ministry. And I want to give you four of those, okay? First and foremost, for those of us who are in Christ, who are Christians, this goal of Christ-likeness, first and foremost, has implications for the what and the how we do ministry in the church. Everything that we do in the church, beloved, should be for the express purpose of glorifying God by helping people be conformed into the image of Christ. How do we assess whether to do one ministry program over another in the church? The simple question is by asking, will this particular ministry or program lead to people becoming like Jesus in thought or conduct for the glory of God? Imagine how simple ministry becomes when we simply focus upon this goal of presenting every man complete in Christ to the glory of God. So this target goal of Christ-likeness has implications for how we do ministry in the church, what we engage in, because we could be engaging so many wonderful good things, but not be doing the best things to get people moving in that process of becoming more and more conformed into the image of Christ. So the question to ask is, how are our ministries moving people along the process of conformity to Christ-likeness? If indeed our target goal is that people would become like Jesus. Second implication. If our target goal is people being conformed into the image of Christ, then we realize very quickly that ministry on this side of glory is never ending, is it? It's never ending. Why? Because we won't be made perfect until we see Christ someday. Our work is not done until the Lord takes us home. Our ministries 
may take a different shape at various seasons and points of life, beloved, but you are always called to be ministering and serving other people and in that glorifying God. So there is no such thing as retirement for the Christian, is there? Some of, some of us are experiencing that, right? There's no room for retirement. There's no room for passivity. There's no room for complacency or lethargy in your pursuit of Christ or in your ministry toward other people. If presenting every man complete in Christ is the goal of ministry, then ministry is a lifetime endeavor that you and I are to be actively participating in in the power of the Spirit of God. Thirdly, if the target goal of ministry is Christ-likeness, then there is no room for partiality and favoritism in the church, beloved. Once again, I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 28 when he speaks of comprehensive shepherding care by repeating the words every man three different times. Notice verse 28. We proclaim Christ admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Why does he repeat himself three different times? Because he's emphasizing the fact that conformity to Christ is the purpose of every Christian without exception. Paul's point is, we have to be concerned for every person we come across, a believer. No one is less important in the church. Everyone is actively to be engaged in this process. Listen, if we believe this, that every person ought to be engaged in this process, then you and I need to be relentless in our pursuit of other people in the body of Christ. As a body of believers, we should be quick to snatch other Christians from isolation, beloved. We should strive to reach out to those who are stagnant, who are not growing as they should. Let us not be people who latch on to others that, that we're in the body with whom we're comfortable with. People that we've known for a long time. That maybe are wired like us. You know what you and I need to be? We need to be nosy Christians. That's right. That's right. This is one time when I'm going to tell you that you need to be a nosy Christian in a positive sense. Okay? And what I mean is this, you are always on the lookout for new people in the church. You are always trying to identify brethren who are not plugged into the church. You are not content simply being a pew sitter, reaching out to no one week in and week out. You want to be actively engaged in the lives of other people. You target individuals. You even sit in strategic places so that you might reach out to somebody that you know is not plugged in. Be a nosy Christian in that sense, in the sense of hospitality, okay? I remember people reaching out to me, people who were so committed to seeing Christ formed in me, especially early on in my Christian walk, who were always willing to go out of their way to come alongside of me, to encourage me, to read and to pray and to be meditating upon Scripture and to be inviting the involvement of others and the other, others' input into my life. I remember those people. I would not be here if it were not for those people, beloved. And each of us can share how God has used others in our lives as instruments in God's hands to reach you. How the Lord used those people. And you can certainly be one of those instruments in God's hands to reach someone else. To be actively engaged in their lives so that they would become more and more like Jesus. I want to ask you this. There are a number of new people amongst us. I want to ask you, beloved, have you met them? Have you met them? Have you reached out to let new people know that you care? Know that you're happy that they are here? Let me ask you this. When was the last time that you invited a person or another family out for lunch? New or not new into the church? Maybe even someone who you haven't ever met in this church after, after being here for years and years and years. When was the last time that you did that? Just to, to, for personal relationship, for personal investment, for encouraging them in their walk with Christ via friendship. Just to get to know them to that end. When was the last time that you opened up your home and practiced kindness to a stranger? Or to strangers. 
And what I mean by that is people that you don't know from this body. When was the last time that you opened up your home for somebody else so that they could see you in that context? Easy to invite somebody out to lunch. Easy to meet them at the park. Quite another thing to invite them into your home so that they see your dirty laundry figuratively and figuratively and literally, right? It's uncomfortable. It's tough. It's challenging. When was the last time you did that? Beloved, if the heartfelt conviction that you have is that every believer is to be moving toward Christ-likeness, then you will be compelled to strive to get to know people and help them along in that process without exceptions. And that means pursuing relationships with people, even when it's uncomfortable for you. Which leads to my fourth Observation, if the target goal of Christian ministry is Christ-likeness, then you and I must remember that ministry, and this is closely related to the previous, ministry is about people. This is so obvious, but so neglected, implicitly and explicitly in our lives. Notice that Paul does not say in verse 28, so that we may present every program complete in Christ. Is that what he says? So that we may present every structure complete in Christ. So that we may present every ministry complete in Christ. So that we may present every building complete in Christ. He says, so that we may present every man or woman complete in Christ. Ministry is about people, beloved. People becoming like Christ to the glory of God. So faithfulness in ministry is not measured by how well we run the machine of programs in our church, but by how you and I are personally invested into others for the glory of God so that they would become more and more like Jesus. And if the programs that we have and the ministries that we have help that process along of investing into people, people getting to know one another and growing in Christ-likeness, then it's a good program. If it isn't doing that, then it can go. Or it can be modified. Even if our beautiful building, heaven forbid, burned down or we had to shut up, shut down all programs, God would still want to know how we are loving one another, beloved, how we are serving one another, how we are investing into one another, how we are loving one another in very practical ways so that his son is formed in each and every one of us. Oh, I've seen it. I've seen it, beloved. I've seen simple ministry, especially in foreign countries. Solid biblical preaching and teaching. And then flowing from that impartation of truth from the pulpit and all around the church life. Beautiful life on life discipleship cultivated. People practicing that truth. Taking what is preached. Taking what is taught and applying it onto the one another's in the way that they invest into one another. Christians loving God and loving one another. Christians personally invested into one another so that they would become like Christ. I've seen it. And some of you here have been an example to me at Calvary Bible Church of that. People who are living this out in this church. There are many of you who are just so good at this. Personally investing yourself constantly into other individuals. Some of you men investing yourself into other men that they would be good husbands and good fathers and good churchmen and good men in the workplace and pursuing Christ likeness. Some of you ladies invested into other ladies, helping them become good mamas and wives and good church ladies. I've seen many of you do this. I was telling our youth staff first hour, Many of them are, are ministering because they want to see Christ formed in these youth. They keep pointing these youth to Christ. And people in our children's ministries are invested there because they want to teach little ones about Christ and point them toward Christ's likeness. That's why they're invested. But there are others of us who are not engaged at all, beloved. But I believe that by God's grace... We can become all the more a church of highly committed Christians doing people ministry for the glory of God. In obedience to the word of God.
Faithful ministry is goal-oriented. Goal-oriented that we would become like Christ. And, you know, I was reminded this week of the solemn reality that as an elder, pastor, overseer, same office, I am on the front lines of being engaged in this process of helping people grow. Solemn reality. Humbling reality. And I will be held accountable for how faithful I am to contributing to this goal in the lives of people, beginning with the way that I pursue Christ. But I also want to remind you this morning that the goal of helping others toward Christ-likeness is also your own. Using your spiritual gifts and the God-given abilities that you have to help others grow is your responsibility according to the Word of God. That you be obedient and be an instrument of edification in the lives of other people. So I want to ask you, how are you doing in that area? How are you doing in that personal investment into the lives of others? If you really own this goal, and I own this goal, then we, beloved, will be ministry-minded people. I want to ask you this. Do you count it a privilege to serve Christ and His people? What gives you most joy and satisfaction in life? Is it helping others grow and mature in Christ? Again, for some of us, we, we count it such a joy and a blessing to come alongside of others and help them along in that pro, pro, process of people becoming like Christ. For others of us, frankly, beloved, people are just a burden. People are just a burden. People take away our time. People suck our energy away, our resources. Whether we would want to admit that or not, That's the perspective that shapes our actions. This type of attitude, beloved, flows from a proud heart. Proud people are not ministry-minded people. Because proud people are only focused on themselves. Proud people are not focused on Christ and on His people. Proud people are preoccupied with self. They live for self. They live for their own comforts and wants and needs and their own priorities rather than the needs of others and the priorities of Christ. But humble people, humble people are ministry-minded people because humble people don't have such a high view of self, so they're about the pursuits of others. The Christ-likeness being formed in the life of another person, of another believer. Humble people want to invest into the lives of others, beloved, because they have this goal of seeing others be conformed to the image of Christ, which ultimately, at the end of the day, is the greatest good for that person, that they would become like Jesus. So which one are you? Are you the proud person? Or are you the humble person who is seeking to invest yourself into the kingdom of God? What is faithful ministry? It is Christ-focused. It is discipleship-oriented. It is goal-driven with Christ-likeness in yourself and in the lives of others as your target goal. And fourthly, faithful ministry is Christ-enabled. Faithful ministry is Christ-enabled. Look at verse 29. For this purpose, and we know what the purpose is from verse 28, right? That of helping people mature into Christ-likeness. Paul says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. Listen. When your greatest desire is to glorify God by seeing others mature in Christ, then all of your efforts in life and ministry will be directed toward this goal with utmost fervor and energy. This is how you know you are sold out for the cause of Christ, that He would be formed in the lives of your fellow brethren. When your life is directed and your energies and everything that you have is directed toward that goal, beloved. That is not radical Christianity. That is normal Christianity according to the gospel of Jesus. 
And so strongly does Paul believe in this goal that his life was spent on this goal. In fact, he uses some strong language here in verse 29 to express his utmost toil toward this great goal. Notice, for this purpose I labor, he says. I labor. That word has the idea of working to the point of exhaustion. And it is in the present tense, habitually, continually, unending toil, he says, is what it takes. This is nonstop laboring to the point of exhaustion for the sake of seeing others conformed into the image of Christ. That's what he's describing here. And in order to add emphasis to the difficulty of service and ministry, he adds, and striving, he says, striving from the, ver- from the verb agonizomai. It is, a, it is related to our English words for agony and for agonize. At times, this word striving has, has reference to the agonizing, extreme, maximum effort required of those who compete in athletic events so that you would be positioned to win the prize. What great discipline and what great fervency and what great self-control is needed for that athlete who wants to win the race and win the prize. There is striving going on there. There is tugging. There is struggle in that athlete, is there not? That's the word here. At times, this word striving is used of the agonizing effort required of those who engage in battle or warfare. It is used in the spiritual realm of agonizing in our our every effort against spiritual dangers and difficulties in our pursuit of godliness, according to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. Paul uses two different words derivative of these words striving in 2 Timothy 4-7. When toward the end of his life, he says this to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. Paul is describing ministry there. That it's like a contest, a struggle, a fight. It's war. Same word is used in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12 of Epaphras. Agonizing for them in his prayers for them. Striving in his prayers. We've already seen this in chapter 1 verse 24. Where Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul says, I am suffering. He had never even met the Colossians directly, and yet he recognized that he was suffering for these Colossians as well in his own flesh, he says, in his body. He says, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul suffered for church, for, for believers. Paul suffered for the Colossians, and he was willing to do that. He rejoiced, but he is acknowledging that it's difficult. It's agonizing. It's striving. It's a struggle. That's the word that he uses in chapter 2 and verse 1. Look there. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for all those who are at, La- who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. What is his point? Ministry is hard. It is labor. It is working to the point of exhaustion. It is striving and tugging and struggling and fighting with extreme agony. But oh, how rewarding, isn't it? How rewarding it is. What a joy when we see the fruit of our labors in our personal life and in the lives of others. Amen? What a joy. I liken the joy of ministry to parenting. What a joy as parents when our children finally learn a lesson and they develop a conviction based upon that learned lesson so that it guides their life. How rewarding that is. It's worth all of the toil and all of the difficulties, right? It is the same in the life of a Christian. As hard as ministry may be, what a joy when a believer turns from his or her own sin and pursues loving obedience. How rewarding that is. It makes it all worthwhile, does it not? What a joy when a Christian learns to rejoice in his or her sufferings and trials and transfers trust from self to wholehearted trust in Christ in the midst of that suffering and in the midst of those trials. What a joy. Ministry is hard work. It's hard labor, agony. 
But how rewarding when it bears the fruit of righteousness in the life of a believer as well as in our own personal lives. Amen? Now, ministry would be humanly impossible were it not for Christ's power mightily working in and through us. Thank God that we are not called to minister on our own strength, but in God's. Look at verse 29. He says, Striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Literally, which in power works within me. This is God's divine energy operating literally in me, in power. It's working in and through me. Paul was a God-dependent man. Though ministry was a continual labor for Paul and it was a fight, God's power was continually and readily available to the Apostle Paul. I love the word power there in verse 29. It's the word from which we get our word energy. Energy. And it is used of supernatural or spiritual energy. This is divine power. This is the power of God. Think about that. God's power is abundantly available to you and I as believers so that we are able to accomplish everything that He has planned for us to accomplish, beloved. We can never use the excuse, well, God didn't strengthen me to do that particular thing. If it's a good thing, if it's a God-glorifying thing, if it's something that is pleasing to Him, He will provide the strength for you to be able to accomplish that, that particular thing. See, Paul was a man who understood the tension between personal responsibility, human responsibility in the Christian life, and learning to trust in God's enabling power, mightily working in and through Him. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, he would write to the Philippians this, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, exert maximum human effort. But then he says right after that, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In the end, it is God who is energizing you to accomplish what God has called you to accomplish. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, you know this verse. Paul writes to the Philippians, I can do all things. That's pretty arrogant, Paul. I can do all things. But then he says, through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul was a God-dependent man who gave maximum effort, but knew that ultimately it was God who was enabling him to accomplish That task. Well, what motivated him to labor this way in ministry? Well, I submit to you that it was not his passing circumstances, his changing circumstances, his challenging relationships. He was able to to continue laboring in this way because his hope was fixed upon the Lord. Paul labored to the point of exhaustion because he had his hope fixed on Christ. He writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Paul says we strive and we labor because we have fixed our hope on the living God, the Savior. It is our sure hope in Christ that motivates us to continue laboring for others in ministry this way. So here we see Paul reminding the Colossians and us that both maximum stretching human effort is needed in ministry and utter dependence upon the Lord are necessary, beloved. Utter dependence. I want to comfort you this morning with the great truth that Christ will not call you to do something for Him that He won't sufficiently empower you to be able to do so that you would be faithful and glorify God. To those of you who, like Paul, are laboring, 
striving to love Christ and serve Christ and His people. I want to remind you that God is more than able by His Spirit to make you sufficient for all good work if you ask for it. So when your well is running dry or has run dry, where do you go? You go to the fountain of living waters. To the one whose well is unending and unceasing, beloved. To the one whose well never runs dry. If you are tired and weary, where do you go to find renewed strength? You go to Christ. If you are on the sidelines, what should motivate you to now, in the power of the Spirit, engage in the lives of others? Christ. If you have lost your sense of purpose in ministry, remember that pursuing Christ's likeness and helping others in that pursuit is how you can glorify God in this life and be faithful. And God is more than able to empower you for that task of serving Him. More than able. This is faithful ministry. We minister first and foremost with our focus upon Christ. Why? Because He's the preeminent one. He alone is the unrivaled, supreme one of the universe, the one who is all-sufficient. We should be pointing people to Christ in our ministry to one another. We should be pointing one another to Christ's likeness, to be set apart like the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be secondly oriented toward life on life discipleship. We should all, beloved, be cultivating mutually edifying relationships whereby we mutually speak the truth of God's Word to one another in love and in gentleness. With what goal in mind? With the desire to see Christ formed in us and the desire to see Christ formed in each and every individual without playing favorites, without partiality. And all of this is to be done with the strength that comes from God. By His Spirit, who is more than able to provide us with the grace and the power for sustainable, effective ministry here on earth. God's Word is so clear, isn't it? God's Word is so clear, crystal clear. God's Word is so definitive. God does not want us to be frustrated, confused, disoriented as to what our mission as a church is, beloved. We have it right here. This is essentially Colossians 1, 28-29, the Great Commission restated in a different way. That's what this is. God wants us to look to Him and to His precious, all-sufficient, inerrant, authoritative Word for all matters of faith and practice and church ministry life. And He's crystal clear. Crystal clear. My encouragement and my exhortation and my challenge to each of us this morning would be this. Are you invested into doing faithful, Christ-centered ministry in this way? Are you focused upon Christ, pursuing Christ yourself, pursuing to be like Him yourself, pointing others to Christ? Are you investing and cultivating relationships in the context of this church, seeking to speak the truth into the lives of others in a relational, loving manner? Is your goal that they would become like Jesus? Is your goal, even taking a step before that, if you are not pursuing Christ passionately yourself, how are you going to point others to do the same? So it becomes a check for us. Am I pursuing the Lord Jesus? Am I passionately pursuing to know Him so that I might be able to point others to Him and say, follow me as I follow Christ? And finally, are you seeking the Lord for strength. Are you a God-dependent man? Are you a God-dependent woman who is seeking the help of God that by His Spirit He would be able to provide you the grace and the power for sustainable, effective ministry here on earth? Beloved, we should be able to say like Paul, when I am weak, He is strong. Right? I am weak, He is strong. Nevertheless, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ would be perfected in me. His grace is sufficient for me. For His power is perfected in my weakness. Pray that way. Lord, 
May your power be perfected in my weakness. Help me to be a highly committed participant, motivated by love for my brethren and for your glory, invested into the lives of others. Let's be praying for that as individuals and as a corporate body, beloved. This is faithful, Christ-centered ministry, basic Christian ministry 101, and God is so definitive and so clear, and we should glorify His name for it. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, You are a great and awesome God, and You have spoken in Your Word and Your revelation so clearly to us. We don't need to be walking around confused, discombobulated in our personal life and in Christian ministry in any way, shape, or form because you've spoken so clearly in your word as to what our mission should be. We are those who have had the light of the knowledge of Christ shown in our hearts. We are the redeemed, those who have been set apart from sin for your glory in Christ because we've seen them for the beautiful one that he is and you've saved us from our sins and you've delivered us and rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Help us, Lord, not just simply to have known Christ at the beginning, but to be focused upon him, Lord, as we grow, as we look to your word, as we seek to walk in loving obedience. Help us to pursue him and help us to point one another to Christ, to his all-sufficiency in everything. Help us, Lord, to be building relationships with one another. Help us to get out of our comfort zones. Help us, Lord, not to be complacent. Help us not to be indifferent. Help us to reach out to others and to, Lord, be personally invested into the lives of others so that we may be in a place where we can speak the truth of your word to the life of another person and vice versa. And help us, Lord, to do this, not to gain followers, not so that, Lord, we can... We can rack up points in the eyes of someone else. Help us to do this because we desire to see Jesus formed in one another. And Lord, help us to be prayerful people because Lord, without you, we can do nothing. Without you and your spirit, we cannot do anything in life. Lord, we need you. Empower us. Grant us the grace and the divine strengthening to be people who are active, highly committed participants here on this earth. We know that one day your son Jesus is returning to deliver the final death blow, to declare victory and to reign in the new heavens and the new earth with all of his redeemed. I pray that, Lord, in the meantime as we wait, we may not be stagnant and be wasting our gifts and our abilities. Help us not to waste our lives, Lord. May it not be that way. We ask you all of these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.